The Tower, Episode 15, New Teen Titans, Issue 9. The Tower Podcast returns to cover the beginning of the next continuing storyline of the New Teen Titans. Also some Titans news, anniversaries, upcoming releases, and more. All on today's episode of The Tower. Welcome to The Tower. Welcome back to The Tower. This is your host, Peter. We're going to jump in with some news announced at this year's San Diego Comic-Con that the new Teen Titans Judas Contract animated movie finally will arrive in spring of 2017. Along with the Judas Contract, uh, they will also be doing Justice League Dark and Batman Harlequin. Now, back in 2006, I remember going to San Diego and they were handing out little cardettes uh, talking about DC's new animated projects that they were going to be doing at the time. And the first three that they decided to do were Superman Doomsday, which did come out in 2007, Darwin Cook's New Frontier, which came out in 2008, and the third one was supposed to be The Judas Contract, but that one didn't uh, didn't come out. Uh, At the time... Uh, Marv Wolfman said that the movie was going to be on hold because according to Warner Home Video, there wasn't enough of an audience at the time for a Teen Titans Judas Contract animated feature to be successful. Now that seems like an odd statement considering the Teen Titans cartoon had run from 2003 to about late 2006, so you would think there was an audience, uh, especially since that cartoon series did touch on the Terra storyline, although in a different format. So anyway, it was shelved. It was supposed to be the third DC Universe animated movie, but uh, they delayed it. It's never been produced, and instead they went to Batman Gotham Knight and to the Wonder Woman animated feature. Now, there was a Justice League versus Teen Titans animated movie uh, that came out, uh, you know, within the last year or two. And it is a loose, very loose adaptation of the first six issues of Wolfman and Perez's New Teen Titans. It's some of the characters, Starfire, Changeling, Raven, Cyborg, uh, with the Damian Wayne Robin and also Blue Beetle thrown in fighting the Justice League, fighting Trigon, Azareth, the, the dimension Azareth makes, a, makes an appearance. Um, so it feels like it's very much the foundation of the New Teen Titans, although told way differently. So think of issue four, where the New Teen Titans fought the Justice League, and then issues five and six, where they fought Trigon. And Raven joins the team at the end, um, and, you know... It, it's it's really just a loose adaptation of those first six issues first six issues but then you get to the end credits and i don't want to spoil it but um the end credits there's a scene during the end credits that is obviously a hint to what is happening here in uh, the judas contract animated movie so i thought that was pretty incredible 
And it was uh, a really great teaser. So, yeah, they're finally going to put this one back on the shelf. Uh, they're going to work on it, and hopefully we will see it. Hopefully. Um, I can't see why not. So look for that in spring of 2017. As far as recent Teen Titans-related or Titans-related releases, as far as they go, uh, just July 27th of this year, the fifth volume of the new Teen Titans was released, and it collects issues 28 through 34 and annual 2. Issue 28 is the issue that I started reading, New Teen Titans, so I believe that's coming to me in one of my next DCBS uh, shipments. So that trade collects um, some Brother Blood storylines, a few one-offs here and there, leading up to Annual 2, which is the introduction of Vigilante. And speaking of Vigilante, in this month's previews, that would be uh, the August previews for book shipping in October, it was just solicited the first issue of a six-issue miniseries, Vigilante Southland, by Gary Phillips, who is an author, and Elena Casagrande, with covers by Mitch Jarrods. Uh, Elena Casagrande was on the art on the book uh, Suicide Risk, which I think was from Boom Studios, but um, uh, don't quote me on that. And this is going to be a totally uh, new character, a character named Donnie. So it said, here's the, here's the blurb. Donnie was feeling pretty settled in, in his cushy life. Even though his girlfriend was politically active, he never gave social justice or racial issues any time. So when Dory discovers something she shouldn't have and ends up dead, no one expects Donnie to be the guy to carry on her work. But that's exactly what he does, putting on a mask and taking to the streets. He soon, fi he soon finds himself tangled in family history, political conspiracy, and a plot that goes far deeper than he ever imagined. Set in the heart of Los Angeles, this new vigilante series raises an, an old question while making it relevant to our times. When you witness bad things being done, how far would you go to set them right? So it's a hard-hitting tale of revenge and redemption. Uh, and the artwork by Casagrande looks great. Some of the stuff I saw looks really, really nice. I'll put uh, a link in the show notes to her website. This would be a perfect time for DC to trade the Vigilante series from the 80s that ran 50 issues, I think, um, and a couple annuals. You know, they finally got off their asses and did New Teen Titans, so you would think they would do the same for Vigilante, and also a Mega Man, and Night Force, and anything else that has a, you know, kind of tangential relationship to New Teen Titans, but we will see. Um, some other, speaking of trades, uh, let's see, the Nightwing trade paperback series collecting his 90s run is up to volume four, Love and Bullets. Uh, number five, The Hunt for Oracle, should be out in October. That brings the series up to issue 46. So we're now with volume five, five beyond the Scott McDaniel artwork and getting into Greg Land and um, you know Chuck Dixon is still writing at the time. Deathstroke, The Terminator, the third volume, Nuclear Winter, was supposed to be out in June and that's been delayed collecting up to issue 20. Um, as of August 17th, which is this week, <laughs> um, the first volume of George Perez's Wonder Woman 
hits the stands. Now, that's been collected a number of times, so they're doing another soft cover version of that, collecting the first 14 issues. So if you have never read Wonder Woman by George Perez from the 80s, kicking off out of crisis, um, here's your chance. I mean, it's 14 issues. If you don't know by the end of 14 issues whether you like it or not, you know, you can stop right there. Um, But I'm excited for that. I have the issues, and here I am. I mean, it's been out in omnibus form, I think, and there were softcover trades before that are hard to find, at least the first two. And now they're doing it again, so for her 75th anniversary. Uh, I'm all for that. What else has come out recently? August 10th, uh, Teen Titans Earth 1 hardcover, Volume 2. I haven't read Volume 1, so that just shipped recently. Of course, DC is in the midst of their DC Rebirth. And back in June, the Titans Rebirth issue came out. August 24th will be the second issue of that series. Back in July, Nightwing Rebirth came out, and August 17th, uh, this week, Issue 3 is on the stands. Um, August 10th, last week, the Deathstroke Rebirth one-shot came out, and Issue 1 will hit in on August 24th. This is by Christopher Priest. I'm really excited about that series. And then September 7th will be Cyborg Rebirth. September 28th will be Teen Titans Rebirth. So lots of Titan stuff in all of this DC Rebirth. I'm going to talk a little bit next episode about the DC Rebirth uh, 80-page story, which will lead me into some Kid Flash talk. Um, Basically, what I'm finding is, as I do these episodes, when I do an episode that focuses on a particular New Teen Titans uh, issue... To also do uh, all the other things that I like to do, like taking a look at the DC Universe at the time and seeing what else Marv Wolfman wrote and what else did Perez draw. Uh, Did any of the Titans show up in any of the other DC titles at that time? Um, You know, now I'm starting to look at some Omega Men issues, some Omega Men appearances, I should say, in Green Lantern. Um, So trying to do all of that along with an issue recap, makes for a really long episode, makes for a really long recording. So I'm going to do, um, in this episode, I'm going to do a recap of New Teen Titans number 9 and talk about it, but then I'm going to save all the supplemental stuff for the next episode, including, as I said, a look at DC Rebirth and also uh, some early Kid Flash appearances because reading DC Rebirth made me realize that I never read the first appearance of Wally West, and I needed to correct that, and I did, and wound up reading a whole bunch of Silver Age Flash. So I'll talk about that in the next episode. If you want a few more Titans-related trades, Tim Drake, his Robin series, is up to Volume 3. The first two volumes collected the miniseries that came out, Um, and some of his early Batman detective appearances. But with Volume 3, they finally are reprinting his original series with the Tom Grummet artwork, so that's kind of cool. Birds of Prey is up to Volume 2. They are redoing all of that. Cassandra Cain Batgirl, they're trading her series again. That's up to Volume 2. And uh, August 24th, that DC will be releasing all 12 issues of Omega Men, Omega Men, excuse me, the 
Tom King a Mega Man uh, story called The End Is Here in a trade paperback for $24.99. So uh, looking forward to all of that. So I mentioned that there are some anniversaries going on. Ten years ago, in 2006, uh, Batman issue 655, 655, it's uh, from July, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it here in August. Uh, that was the first appearance of Damian Wayne, so he's actually 10 years old. That character is now 10 years old. Also, 10 years ago, Roy Harper joined the Justice League of America by Brad Meltzer in issue one, and he would eventually be called Red Arrow. 25 years ago, DC was going through War of the Gods and Armageddon 2001. Uh, they actually did have a trade of the War of the Gods miniseries um, that came out back in March of this year. And with War of the Gods, issue number 28 of Hawk and Dove uh, was the final issue of that series at that time. There's another Titans-related series that could get a trade uh, series that would be kind of cool. So yeah, issue 28 would be the end of Hawk and Dove, obviously because of Hawk's um, character change that would go on in Armageddon 2001, right? Speaking of Armageddon 2001, there was New, New Titans Annual 7 25 years ago, featuring the first appearance of Lord Chaos, which would turn out to be Donna Troy's child, all grown up and uh, you know, Stark raving mad because he's a demigod. The Team Titans were appearing at this time. Eventually, they would get their own series. So the the New Titans was going through this whole resurgence after Titans Hunt, and there were just all these, ah, it was just all craziness and all this futuristic stuff and um, alternate reality stuff. And with the Team Titans came a different version of Terra. It was pretty crazy. So I thought it would be fun just to point out what was going on 10 years ago and 25 years ago in the Titans universe. All right, when we return, we will take a look at New Teen Titans issue 9. It's puppet time! No! Keep your hands off my puppets! What's up with these puppets? I can't do anything! Oh, mine cannot even perambulate! Oh, yes, they can. Puppets can do everything. They're the ultimate form of artistic expression. You're just doing it wrong. So if this is your first Tower episode, hello. And what I do is I take a New Teen Titans issue and I talk about it. And I try to see if there are any developments in Perez's art style or if there are any elements of Teen Titans mythology or lore that get introduced or expanded on, uh, basically I go you know issue by issue and do a recap and see what I think of, of the story and how it fits within the Titans universe. So the first eight issues um, have already been talked about, and those first eight issues make up the first volume of this soft cover trade series that DC is doing. With issue nine, we are now at the start of the second volume, volume two of the trade paperback series, and that'll go up to issue 16. So if you're someone who is collecting the trades, that way you can kind of play along and say, all right, this is the start of a new trade series, so I can uh, you know, read those issues and then play along and listen along to the uh, Tower episodes. The first eight issues of New Teen Titans obviously set the foundation of this series. 
We had uh, issue one brought them together. Issue two introduced Deathstroke the Terminator, working with Hive, an organization that is looking to bring down the Titans. Issue three uh, introduced the Fearsome Five and also kicked off a storyline that would lead up to um, a battle with Trigon the Terrible, who is Raven's father. Uh, issue four brought in the Justice League. Issue five and six was the battle with Trigon, introduced Raven's mother, her origin, um, the land known as Azeroth, and it helped to cement the Teen Titans, uh, the new Teen Titans as a team. And then with issue seven, we learned who created Titan's Tower, which was uh, Cyborg's father, Silas, and it also featured uh, the Fearsome Five again. And then with issue eight, Marv Wolfman and George Perez took a little bit of a turn and presented a quieter issue uh, called A Day in the Lives. And it was just an issue where, you know, uh, the creators kind of filled in some backstory with some of the new characters, expanded the supporting cast of the new Teen Titans by introducing Terry Long, uh, also Sarah Sims, um, who would be, uh, you know, very important in Cyborg's life. And it was a way to kind of just take our breath within those first eight issues and sort of say, this is where we are. Let's take a little stock. Remember, this was a a, a series at the time that no one thought it was going to last beyond six issues. And uh, in the introduction to the second uh, trade paperback, Marvel even said the first issue sold great. The second and third issue, those tanked. But then slowly by issue four and then six and seven, sales just kept going higher and higher and higher and higher. And when they did issue eight, they knew they had something special. So if the first eight issues, uh, if you look at that as the foundation, Wolfman talks about the next bunch of issues as kind of like the experimental stage, like, you know, sort of saying, all right. If this is what we did, and if we're going to be serious about this book, and we're going to make it the best we can do, we need to stretch our wings a little bit to see what we can do. And even if we fail, we at least tried, and we're going to keep going and seeing where we can go from here. So I thought it was a really nice way to look at the next bunch of issues as we do them here on the tower. Now, if you read issue eight or listened to the podcast where I talked about that issue, It was a standalone issue. However, there were these little subplots going on. Uh, There was this older gentleman named Jeremy Thornton who was um, purchasing a toy for his grandson. And at the end of the issue, the toy, the puppet, came to life and shot the older man. Uh, He works for uh, Dayton Labs and uh, he works for... um, Uh, Dayton Industries, I should say, Steve Dayton, uh, who is the stepfather to Changeling. And also in issue eight, you meet for the first time Vernon Quester, who is a member of Steve Dayton's staff. And he calls up uh, Changeling and says there have been two murders, and they are all members of uh, the committee um, for a project called Project Prometheum. And it's a little subplot that happens in issue eight, and it gets uh, finally touched on and um, developed further with issue nine. So that brings us to issue nine of the new Teen Titans. And as always, what I do is I read a synopsis from the official Teen Titans index 
from ICG. This is back from 1985. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, so it's New Teen Titans issue 9, cover date of July of 1981. The cover was by George Perez. And the story, like puppets on a string, 25 pages, by the way, for 50 cents. Uh, you have uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez as co-creators, plotter and scripter by Marv Wolfman, pencils by George Perez, inker Romeo Tangle, letterer Ben Oda, colorist Adrian Roy, editor Len Wein. And the synopsis is as follows. Changeling asks Robin to help investigate the murders of several Dayton industry executives, which are traced to Green Lantern's old foe, the Puppeteer, now in league with the Hive. Meanwhile, through his robot puppets, Puppeteer takes control of Cyborg, Kid Flash, Starfire, and Wonder Girl, and turns them against their teammates. Raven's soul self is finally able to break their trance, and the Titans unite to battle Puppeteer and his toy robotic army. When the villain is defeated, the Hive attempts to destroy him for his failure. Now, eventually I'm going to go in depth in the story, but I wanted to touch on the character of Puppeteer because I thought it was such a weird choice to use this character, um, you know, in a in a new book like this. And I almost thought, okay, the Teen Titans were a Silver Age com concept. The Puppet Master is definitely a Silver Age concept. So I thought, is this Marv Wolfman's way to try to blend the two and update the two and sort of say, look... You can take DC's history and continuity and do something more modern with it, modern as of 1981, and and it can work. And it can work and you can use it to benefit yourself uh, to tell whatever story it is you want to tell. So from that same volume, volume two of the New Teen Titans, um, from the introduction, I thought I would actually read what Marv Wolfman said about issue nine before I get into it. He says here... After a major cosmic storyline and a one-issue, all-character, no-action story, we decided to take on a standard DC villain and see what we could do with it. Because I was a huge Green Lantern fan, I wanted to use the Puppet Master from Green Lantern number 1. Our story is nothing special, but the issue exists to introduce a number of strong character arcs that would take years to culminate. In issue 9, we set up Quester, Gar Logan's foil at home, even as we poured the cement for the upcoming Deathstroke Changeling relationship. We also met Sarah Sims and her school kids, introduced briefly in issue 8, and spend time with Terry Long, Wonder Girl's future husband. At the time, some fans didn't like that Donna A. wasn't dating Dick Grayson, and B. was involved with a much older man. Speaking for myself, I thought Donna needed someone who was more mature, a less confident guy who would never be able to survive, uh, a less confident guy would never be able to survive in a relationship with equally strong-willed and strong-armed Donna Troy. So those were, her th were his thoughts on this issue. And I'm really glad he said that because I sort of felt that way by the end of this issue. I felt like it was an okay issue. Um, certainly nothing that lived up to the previous issues. Um, it wasn't that it felt generic. I can see where Wolfman talks about laying the groundwork for future subplots and storylines and seeds and things like that. But, you know, the whole thing, I sort of read it and thought, okay, that's that. 
that's that. That's what Wolfman wanted to do. And he's right. It did develop some things, um, which we'll talk about. So Puppet Master, um, there have been a number of Puppet Masters within the DC Universe. So first off, there's been a Golden Age Puppet Master from Batman number three, cover date of September 1940. Uh, And this was um, written by Bill Finger, uh, Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson was an inker, George Rousseau. Um, I assume Bob Kane did the artwork, Um, you know, who knows. And it's a it's a crazy golden age story, um, you know, between the cover of Batman and Robin running toward the reader and the way Batman quips throughout this entire story. I mean, full on is joking. Uh, I can see why the TV show did what it what it did, because that's what this Batman was. Anyway, um, there uh, there's this whole story about Batman stopping a mugging of a scientist named Dr. Craig it's because he's developed a formula for atomic energy and there's this guy named Dimitri and he's the puppet master. And when you scratch a certain individual, you inject uh, a thought serum into their minds and he can control them over great distances for 48 hours because uh, just because of his thought waves. So they become his human puppets. And it's it's this is basically what the storyline is. He, he wants to get the serum and then he wants to get this... Um, I'm sorry, he wants to get this formula for atomic energy. Then he wants to get this military weapon. Uh, and then he actually uh, hypnotizes Batman. Um, and by the end of it, you know, everything works out. So, it, and it's really kind of funny because, um, so he hypnotizes Batman in hopes that he would go and steal something for Dimitri. And then the police would show up and then arrest him. So, uh, eventually, well, I mean, obviously that doesn't happen. And then Batman returns to Wayne Manor and Robin sees him and something's wrong with him. And Batman actually smacks Robin, probably not the first time, definitely definitely not the last time that he's going to hit him. And Robin realizes that he's being hypnotized. So Robin decks him, knocks him on his unprotected chin, as it says, and knocks him out. This little kid knocks him out with one punch and carries him over his shoulder to uh, give him an give him an electric shock that'll shock him out of his his uh, hypnotism um i just thought it was funny i just thought it was a, a a quirky kooky story so so there's a puppet master um by the way the uh uh one of the later issues one of the later stories in that issue featured the third appearance of the cat catwoman right oh also in that story um some robbers are going to rob a train and it's called the Metropolis Limited Train. So I thought that was kind of cool that they used the word Metropolis. I assume they meant Superman's uh, home city. Um, the Batplane is also featured in this issue and it has this kind of, I think it has this interesting bat design on the hull and on the wings. So it's not all blue, it's not all solid. It actually has this like little design that you would, you know, like a fighter jet would have. Uh, teeth and eyes, right? This had a bat design on it, which was kind of cool. So the blurb for that story read like this. Uh, Bruce Wayne, bored society playboy by day, Avengers of crime by night. This is the way of that strange, mysterious figure known as the Batman. With his young aide, Dick Grayson, called Robin the Boy Wonder, 
he again matches wits with an evil, all-powerful being able to sway the minds of men, a being who pulls the strings of his human marionettes with mad, skillful fingers. This is the, st- uh, this is the strange case of the diabolical puppet master. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, so that's the Golden Age one, right? Then, uh, you know, also sort of from the end of Golden Age, beginning of Silver Age. Uh, we, from, this is from cover date October 54. Detective Comics 212 also featured a character known as Puppet Master. This time, his name was Jonathan Bard. Uh, the origin story for him was that he grew up watching a Punch and Judy show and... He couldn't, he didn't have any friends and he couldn't control the minds of men, but he could control the minds of puppets. Well, not the minds, but you know what I mean. He could control puppets and use them for a life of crime, of course. Um, the blurb for this one says Everyone has laughed at puppet shows with the lifelike little figures that walk and talk when their masters pull the strings. But Batman and Robin find out that puppets are no laughing matter when they're used in a big way for crime. For the great detective duo faces the weirdest threat to Gotham City yet when they battle the menacing marionettes of the Puppet Master. And there's no allusion to the previous Golden Age story. There's no mention that they once fought another Puppet Master. Um, This one is a little more generic. It's not that he really controls anybody with his minds. He just has giant puppets that work and that can do his bidding. Eventually, Batman and Robin get caught on strings and... uh, He's going to puppet them, marionette them to death in front of all of these mobsters. And uh, a few of those images of Batman and Robin on strings are strangely reminiscent of the issue 9 New Teen Titans cover where all the Titans are strung up on strings. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, Again, another character, another puppet master that we will never see. So then we go to Green Lantern number one. This is cover date July, August of 1960. So that's now three puppet masters in the DC universe prior to Marvel's puppet master uh, from the Fantastic Four, right? Philip Masters, who appeared in issue eight, cover date of November 1962, and who was the stepfather of Alicia Masters. Now, obviously, that puppet master would have some longevity uh, in the Marvel Universe and in comics. But the three from DC, um, you know, they, they, they obviously did not have any, um, any weight. So the Puppet Master that we see here in this issue first appeared, as I said, in Green Lantern number one of his series. He would next appear in Justice League of America number five in 1960, and then not again until this issue in 1980. Uh, 19- 80, or yeah, 1980-81. So being the research nut that I am, I actually read Green Lantern 1 from uh, 1960, because I've never read it before, just so I could read the first appearance of this puppet master in a story called Menace of the Giant Puppet. It's actually the second story of this issue, and it's by uh, John Broom, Gil Kane, and inker Joe Giella, or Giella. I wanted to read it just so I could get some background on the character, especially especially since he only appeared in two issues prior to this Titans issue. Um, so the whole thing kicks off. There's a charity parade going on in Coast City, and Green Lantern decides to appear because he wants to in- use it as a way to investigate a series of weird bank robberies where all these criminals are, are robbing banks, but they don't remember doing it or they... they 
they feel like they weren't in charge of themselves. And eventually, um, it comes out that there's a gentleman called the Puppet Master. And they also call him the Puppeteer of Crime and also just a Puppeteer. So Green Lantern calls him Puppeteer. And uh, eventually, through um, um, their their confrontation, um, using a hypno-ray, which forces anyone he focuses on to obey his mental commands... Uh, the puppeteer goes after Green Lantern. Now, before, he could only work on criminals because what he says is even though he can control people, uh, he can't control them so that they go against their normal compunctions. So that's why he was using criminals. But as a way to get to use Green Lantern, he says he just adds a cue circuit that lets him control people instead of just hypnotizing them. So he controls them like puppets now. So there are these energy beams that shoot through the air and latch onto Green Lantern's wrists and uh, onto his ankles. And basically, the energy just kind of pulls him, marches him to the uh, Puppet Master. But, of course, Green Lantern uh, wanted him to pull him there so that he could fight him. And uh, eventually, you know, he defeats the Puppet Master in like five panels and uses ropes around the Puppet Master to march him like a marionette to the police station. Um, the Puppet Master is dressed in yellow, so Green Lantern can't confront him with his uh, green energy of energy beam of power, but he can use stuff that's in the, lab- in the laboratory, uh, and that's how he ropes him up. So it's not a very, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not a very creative story. I, it makes you wonder why why they would use a character like the Puppet Master, um, of all things. Um, And even though it's the second story, he does get cover billing. There's this giant puppet that's fighting Green Lantern, so uh, that's kind of weird. So the Puppet Master is not given a full name. Um, His energy tendrils that reach out are similar to what goes on here in this New Teen Titans issue. Um, You know, there's there's something kind of similar to the way he looks, Um, But that's about as much as you get from his first appearance. Meanwhile, let me talk about the first story real quick in Green Lantern number one, also by John Broom and Gil Kane, inked by Murphy Anderson, who I really liked uh, over Gil Kane's artwork. So Green Lantern number one is only the seventh appearance of Hal Jordan in the Silver Age, and he's been Green Lantern for about a year, so the story says. Now, this story, he meets... The Guardians, for the first time, this is their first appearance, it is Oa's first appearance, and they meet him because they want to talk to him about how he acquired his power because they have a task for him uh, because there's a creature that's threatening these aliens on another world and they, they want to see if he's up, uh, up to snuff. They want, they want to see if he's worthy. And of course he is. But what's interesting about this story is... This is what's, it's so funny. The focus, when they talk about his origin, um, uh, you know, they, they want to hear what he has to say. And he says, you know, the, the typical Green Lantern origin, he was sitting in a test, um, you know, uh, construction for test pilots and he gets whisked away and he meets Abin Sur and he gets powers and Abin Sur dies. And, you know, that's how it becomes. And he, and he says, I'm going to name myself Green Lantern after the battery power that Abinsur gave me. So then um, the Guardians fill in the rest of the story of how Abinsur crashed onto Earth and why. And, uh, you know, when they tell him all this, they send back 
Hal Jordan's energy form, but they don't give him his memory. They don't let him his, retain the memory that he just met the Guardians. And by the way, they are called the Guardians. They're not called Guardians of the Universe just yet. So they meet Hal Jordan, and he meets them, but they don't let him remember that at this point. So that's curious. The other thing, okay, so the whole thing with the origin, it really is focusing around the battery of power. It's not focusing around the ring, at least told in this issue. So Abinsur keeps saying, uh, you know, I want to give you this battery of power, and it and it is uh, the special metal um, helps contain the green energy beam, and there, there's an impurity so that it won't work on yellow. And if you take away the impurity, the power won't work. Um, and then eventually he says, okay, now here's the ring. But it, it's not like he gives him the ring. He talks more about the battery, which is kind of cool. Um, and he says here, you know, um, this is the batteries given only to selected space patrol men in the super galactic system to be used as a weapon against forces of evil and injustice. So again, all about the battery, no mention of Green Lantern, right? So then when he, uh, Hal Jordan meets the Guardians, they said, you know, we want to meet the man we, that, uh, that we found uh, we want to meet him. We found that an individual named Green Lantern had come into possession of Abin Sir's power battery. And then later he said, the Guardians say, Hal Jordan, or Green Lantern as he calls himself on Earth. So what they're saying here is that the patrolmen are not called Green Lantern, that Hal gave himself that name based on the power battery, but that they're not called that. Yet they all have the power battery symbol on their chest, and so do the Guardians, uh, and so did Abin Sir. But, you know, I, I really want to go back and read the true first appearance of Hal Jordan to see if this was a thing. Like, it was not, he wasn't a member of the Green Lantern Corps. They weren't named the Green Lantern Corps at this time. Eventually, that's going to be retconned. I just thought that was fascinating to find out. So, that, you know, it kind of makes sense. That's why he named himself Green Lantern, because the whole focus was on the power battery. Otherwise, he might have named himself Green Ring or something like that. And then that made me think, well, that must be why on Earth 3, the Green Lantern counterpart is called Power Ring. Maybe maybe the focus was about the ring and not the battery for that character. So, um, yeah, he's described as the wielder of the green beam of power. So, fascinating. F fascinating stuff when you go back and actually read you know, the origins of all this stuff. I never knew that. I never knew that that was the focus. So I'm curious to read later Green Lantern stories and, um, you know, the earliest one, just to see if that holds up. Um, that, uh, you know, Green Lantern is a name that Hal Jordan came up with. Not, it wasn't that that's what the core was named at the time. Fascinating. All right, so then we cut to Justice League of America number five from, also from June, July, 1961 by Gardner Fox, pencils by Mike Sikowski, inker Bernard Sachs. Uh, the editor was Julius Schwartz. Julius Schwartz. Um, so this is issue five. Uh, you have the Big Seven and Snapper Carr. Green Arrow had just joined the team last issue. And the whole premise of this is that there's a trial going on amongst the Justice League because they feel Green Arrow has turned traitor because they went up against all these villains and Green Arrow kept destroying them and knocking out his teammates and then disappearing 
and they wondered if he was on the side of the villains. And it turns out, of course, no, he wasn't on the side of the villains. The villains were just robots, and if he got too close, they would explode. So if the other JLA members got too close and touched them, they would explode and die. So, you know, instead of him just saying that, he had to go through all this subterfuge and and blow up the robots himself, and it made him look like a bad guy, but everything worked out in the end. Now, these villains were comprised of uh, various villains of all the Justice League members who to this point really only showed up about maybe one or two t- one or two times in different stories. So you had the Puppet Master who would be Green Lantern's villain who only showed up one issue before. You had Captain Cold for Flash who had showed up about two or three issues um who appeared in two or three issues of Flash to this point. You had Electric Man who was an Aquaman villain who only had one or two appearances. You had um, Professor Menace, who was a Wonder Woman villain. Monty Moran, the getaway mastermind, who was a Martian Manhunter villain. And then you had King... Well, they call him King Clock here. But he's drawn like Clock King, who uh, in his earliest appearances battled uh, Green Arrow, right? Yeah, I think so. So that was kind of weird that throughout the issue they kept calling him King Clock, but he's not King Clock. He's Clock King. You know, he's got the clocks all over his body. He's got the clock for his face and the and the cape, and all of that. Um, they don't really give themselves a name, but they do keep saying uh, "Doom to the Justice League," "Doom to the Justice League." So it's almost like they're, uh, you know, a real real early version of the Legion of Doom. As it turns out later on, you find out that all of this is uh, a way. Um, oh, you find out that Green Arrow says that not only did he know this about the the villains, that they were just robots, but that one of their own, one of the Justice League, was a traitor, was not was not who he was uh turns out to be. He was an imposter, and it was Green Lantern. And the man impersonating Green Lantern was Dr. Destiny. This is the first appearance of major Justice League villain Dr. Destiny, although he doesn't look like a skeleton at this point. And he has this Graviton Will Deadner Ray, (laughs) which, um, oh, and he also goes about flying about with gravity control discs. And um, he's going to capture the Justice League almost like puppets, almost like the way Puppet Master would. And eventually Green Lantern frees himself and they manage to battle him and they just shush him off to to the police, I guess. So he's not quite the Dr. Destiny that we will know. But, um, yeah, so this was an appearance of just a whole bunch of different one-off villains, very you know, Z-list villains that you wouldn't expect to see again, although Captain Cold you will, and, and Clock King. Um, also, by the way, in the letter column page, they print a, they print an essay called What's Wrong with Comics? Uh, by Gary Friedrich, who would be a writer, um, you know, I think, what, the co-creator of Ghost Rider and some other stuff. So um, I'm assuming that's the Gary Friedrich. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, just a strange story. Puppet Master doesn't get much uh, screen time. Um, But, uh, you know, that's his second appearance. So that means we now finally get to New Teen Titans, cover date of July 81, number nine, like puppets on a string. Uh, So I read the synopsis. There's not much more that goes on. Um... We meet another member of the Dayton Industries group, 
Harold Appleton. That's how the story opens, and he's being killed. He's now the fourth member uh, of the Project Prometheum committee that dies. Um, Gar Logan has rushed back to Staten Manor, and Vernon Quester says, you know, you got to look into this, and he doesn't want the responsibility. But Vernon thinks to himself, hmm, well, that's not what you, you know, what you want is not what you're going to get. Um, and that's very much the Vernon Quester that I know, the one that is a little bit rougher with Gar Logan and doesn't like when he changes into different animals. In his first appearance, he was kind of foppish and, and um, as Cyborg says, talking out of his nose. But in this one, he's sterner. And, and you know, certainly this is the Vernon Quester we're going to read about in later issues. So then Gar goes to his room. He gets attacked by a puppet. Um and he makes a joke. He says, uh, my chest hairs are bristling. And I thought, that kind of sounds like a Spider-Man dig, right? You know, my spidey, senses, my spidey sense is tingling. I thought it was funny. Um, so Gar Logan, he doesn't know who attacked him. Is it the Terminator? Is it the Fearsome Five? Is it some old Doom Patrol villains? Uh, and then he says here, uh, you know, oh, that's that's all just the way uh, people in comics are. They they all have an IQ of 175, but I'm just average. I can't figure this out on my own. So I thought it was an interesting little bit of character there. But then he doesn't tell Vernon that he was almost killed. Like, he doesn't even let him in the room. I thought that was weird. It's like, yeah, okay, no wonder you call yourself average. You're kind of dumb. Um, Vernon says that he's the administrative assistant. Last time he said he was the business coordinator or something like that. Um, so Gar decides to call on Robin because if there's anybody that can figure this all out, it's Robin. So one thing that this issue does, all the Titans are kind of separated. Um, they're like all coupled up and eventually they get together by the end of the issue. So I thought that was a nice little build as it went along. You don't get the whole team, especially after last issue where it was just these random, you know, story plots and storylines. Um, of individual titans, the same thing is happening here. So it kind of eases us back into the group, which I really liked. So Robin goes to the Long Island Laboratory of Dayton Industries. Um, he learns about Project Prometheum, which was named after the Greek god who brought fire to the from the gods to the humans and then was punished for it by... Uh, um, uh, he was chained against a mountain and then a bird, a vulture, or hawk, or eagle, or whatever would come and eat his liver. And then every morning the liver would regenerate and the same thing would happen over and over again. So that's what this Prometheum stuff is. It regenerates. It's a self-generating energy source. And it could be used for medical purposes or it could coat cars and they could be indestructible in an accident. And then again, uh, and then of course, if it fell into the wrong hands, it could, it could become a nuclear device and it could just self-generate and it could destroy the planet, if not the universe, Vernon says, which was kind of interesting. Now, um, to talk about what Wolfman said about laying the groundwork, Prometheum would be something that would come up a lot, especially in terms of cyborg. Eventually, his body would be replaced with Prometheum. And also Steve Dayton in uh, later years, specifically in the Baxter run of the Titans, Volume 2 of New Teen Titans, where Prometheum could empower um, characters. And then you get this group called the Hybrid um, in this crazy brother blood storyline that went on for too long. So Prometheum being introduced here is a major part of the Teen Titans lore. Um, so Vernon talks about the council 
and he says he knows who it is that is probably behind all this, a guy named Jordan Weir, W-E-I-R, and this is the first time we get a real name for the Puppet Master. Robin said it, says it sounds familiar, and Vernon says, of course, he was the Puppet Master, the Puppeteer, and then that's where we get this little footnote that says, yep, Puppet Master way back in Green Lantern number one. So they go and seek out uh, the Puppet Master's uh, apartment in the New York East 80s. And, of course, what do they find but a puppet of him that tries to kill them and blows up. Um, I thought it was cool to see Gar change into a snake and go and bite the guy before he realized he was a robot, kind of using his powers, uh, his animal abilities off offensively. Um, instead of just, you know, turning into a bird to fly and turning into an elephant to charge someone. Like here, like using, turning into a, a snake to use venom. Like, that was cool. I thought that was a neat use of his powers. So, of course, uh, you know, it's not the Puppet Master. The Puppet Master is shown uh, to be dressed all in yellow again. His suit's kind of updated. He's got a helmet with a huge visor. And um, he's working with the Hive, who show up once again. And they want the Project Prometheum formula. They want it for themselves. Now, they tried to use the Terminator to destroy the Titans because they knew the project was going to be completed. And now they're trying once again to get it again. So the Hive really have it in for the Titans. Now, of course, the Puppet Master and all of his Silver Ageness says, Look, I was just toying with Robin and Gar. I just wanted to test their abilities to see what they could do. Uh, you know, but next time... Not only will I kill the Titans, but I will use the Titans to kill the Titans. <laughs> so there again, that whole, like, let's use Silver Age concepts, let's use Silver Age dialogue to update this story. So this is why this story kind of, you know, it didn't really light my fire. Um, we cut to Cyborg and Raven, who are with Sarah Sims and all of her um, kids, and this is in the West 70s of New York. Marwolfman is very specific about his locations. Um, I love Raven in this in this uh, little sequence. She's much calmer, obviously after last issue where she came to grips with her powers and um, some other things. She's she's drawn beautifully. She has that jet black hair, and her face is much softer than it'll become. She's just really uh, a cool character at this point. She's not as tortured, right? So it's rare to see that and i haven't read this issue in probably decades so to see a much calmer raven was quite enjoyable um she talks to cyborg about about himself really and says you know look you are well educated you are you are you have a ton of compassion yet you use slang in your speech you you use a method to kind of bring yourself down um and he says look it just makes me feel comfortable and when I read that sequence, I thought, you know, he kind of does feel like like the thing from Fantastic Four. And Marvel Woman has and Len Wein have often said that teen, the new Teen Titans were created to compete with the Fantastic Four, not with the X-Men. So here's a sequence where I really felt that. Cyborg was Ben Grimm. He was playing Ben Grimm and, and Raven more or less was playing Sue. Sue Storm. So um, I thought that was kind of cool. Now, eventually he gets uh, attacked by a little miniature Batman uh, puppet, which I thought was funny. 
And what happens is it's a neural connector. So when it explodes on his chest, he gets uh, he gets caught up in the puppet master's control. And it's really cool because there are these energy tendrils that lift all the way up into the sky the way Perez draws them. So it looks like they are strings on a marionette, right? Kind of similar to what they did way back in Green Lantern number one, although this one is designed, you know, obviously a little more modern and a little more updated. The other thing that was interesting about Cyborg in this sequence, when he is under the control of the Puppet Master, he tries to attack Raven, right? And Marv Wolfman has a narration box where he says um, that these little steel grapplers from the balls of his feet emerge to anchor him to the ground. So in a way, his body is kind of adapting and moving. And I always thought of his uh, other cyborg parts as being attachments. You know, he has his white sound attachment and his grapple hook. And these were all things that he attached onto his hand uh, or connected to his eye. But here's a sequence where something is moving literally out of his body. And that's not something I would think of until much later for Cyborg, you know, or even now in, in, in the way he the way he can, you know, move, form his body to become a gun or whatever. So um, to have it this early, uh, I didn't remember that. So I thought that was kind of nice to learn about his powers. So Raven disappears from Cyborg's attack and she goes to get Wally West. Um, Wally West, again, is having some, you know, identity crisis. He wants his secret identity uh, to be a secret. He doesn't want it to be revealed on campus. He talks about, you know, he still hasn't decided what he wants to do. He was on a leave of absence from the Titans, but Raven pulled him back in. You know, he doesn't want, he doesn't know if he wants to be Kid Flash or just plain Wally West. Can I go back to being a real person? Have I been a superhero too long? If only I could see into the future and know what I should do. Now, what I find interesting there is because of all this DC Rebirth stuff, it's like, boy, not only do we know his future um, just a little bit beyond in the New Teen Titans series, but, you know, decades later, his uh, future is still being told. So poor Wally West, ever the tortured hero. There's a cool thing where Raven says that she's going to look for Donna and the princess and talks about Victor. You're like, nobody uses code names. See, this is what I love about the Titans. Nobody uses code names. They are friends, and they use all their real names. Uh, we cut to Donna and Corey, who are with Terry Long. And Corey is kind of almost interrogating Terry about Donna, you know, asking him, do you like her? And then asking Donna later, do you love him? And this is all seeds, you know, this is all Wolfman again, planting seeds. Um, in fact, Wonder Donna Troy even says, uh, you know, Corey, I can't think of anyone I'd rather spend the rest of my life with. Now, come on, you know, we know that she eventually marries him. So this is, you know, a nugget for that. But also coming up is a storyline with the Titans of Myth that'll have some ramifications with Donna. Um, so that was a nice little sequence. Eventually, Cyborg manages to entrap Kid Flash, and then Kid Flash uh, and Cyborg entrap Wonder Girl. Starfire battles them, um, and she's prepared. She's prepared to fight them, you know? Even though they are her friends, she's like, look, I gotta do what I gotta do. <laughs> she gets punched by Donna and says she never felt such power before. She's impossibly strong. Um, there's a sequence where Raven disappears again, and Wolfman writes, 
She moves between dimensions as easily as you might cross the streets. And he uses that a lot about that whole traveling through, you know, through dimensions. Um, you know, some more Silver Age silliness. Puppet, Puppet Master wants to destroy the Titans, but then he's like, oh, wait, first I will use them to take possession of the project, and then they will destroy themselves. And it's sort of like, make up your mind, Puppet Master. Like, just kill them if you really want the hive to not go after you you had the power to destroy them and of course he doesn't then we cut to the manhattan offices of dayton industries um and all the titans attack robin and gar uh, because they were there trying to tell the board you know this is what what's up and of course the board was like nah we don't believe it so then the titans attack and what i like about this is okay so again it's a it's a way of getting the team together by the end of the issue but it's also interesting to see them battle each other because then you get a little bit more about their powers and how they work and what could they, what could they do to each other. Um, so I thought that was cool. I thought that was a neat sequence here. Uh, Wally, he manages to free himself by vibrating and spinning almost to the speed of light or the way that Wolfman says. He says uh, he uses vibrational force which made me think of the speed force, right? I thought that was cool. So he frees himself and then manages to free Starfire. Robin is being choked by Cyborg and says, you know what, I gotta fight dirty, and kicks him in the balls. <laughs> With a sound effect that says, "womp," And he really does it because uh, the next caption box, uh, Wolfman says, Cyborg's eyes bulge. And then Wally says, he's never gonna forgive you for that. So I thought that was like, ouch, that... <laughs> That's kind of rough, and Robin's like, you know what? He'll get over it. All right, so they're all free from the Puppet Master, and they are ready to go after him. Starfire's like, look, I want to destroy him. Like, there's no, like, oh, what happened? Where, how, you know, I feel, I feel groggy. Nope, they're all like, let's get him. And then Wally, he responds by saying, well, you know, destroying them, that's a little too permanent for me, which is a nice little um, divide between the characters. You know, Starfire's not afraid to get in and kill people. Uh, she's a, from a warrior race, but Wally is old school, right? He's he's the Flash's sidekick, and you don't kill people, right? So I thought that was kind of cool. So they go and uh, they go after the Puppet Master. He sends a whole bunch of toys after them, of course, and they can just let loose because it's nothing but toys. And and Wolfman can describe them, right? He describes Starfire just going, you know, pure. Uh, savagery. Her lips curl in a, in cruel savagery as she just blasts all these toys. And Starfire at the end says, "Look, that's how you fight. That's how you get things done. You just you just don't hold back." The puppet master, the puppet master, puppeteer escapes. Um, there's some hive members that are looking on, and one of the hive members says, "You know, all right, I want you to shoot him with your gun." But then they never shoot him, so I assume that's what's going to happen next issue, or maybe it's an off-panel kind of thing. Then we cut to the last page. We're back at the Long Island Steve Dayton uh, laboratory. It's now on fire, and the fire was started by Deathstroke, and he has in his hands uh, a canister that uh, hold the plans for Project Prometheum, and he starts laughing, ha 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 ha, which I thought was a little out of character, but... Uh, that's it. That's the issue. And it leads us to issue 10, which, uh, they say here, it's going to be on sale May 7th of 1981, Prometheum Unbound. So, you know, that was the story. 
uh, as I said, Wolfman alluded to it and said that, uh, you know, nothing really special. We just wanted to see what we could do. Um, Perez's art uh, is good. It's it's still not the Perez art that's in my brain from when I started re- reading the New Teen Titans, but it's getting there. And there's some really nice sequentials that build from panel to panel, uh, almost showing, uh, you know, one second of time and then the next second of time. I always like when he does that. He does it on the page where um, Gar Logan is in his room and he's looking in a mirror and behind him is a puppet coming to life. And one panel, the puppet raises the gun and the next panel, he like stands up and the third panel, he, uh, you know, fires it. So I, I always dig when he does that kind of stuff. There's one group shot of the Teen Titans, of the Titans, when they go to where um, the, the lair of Puppet Master and the heights aren't exactly right. Raven feels a little bit too tall. Starfire feels a little bit too short. But Cyborg's pretty tall, and Changeling is pretty short. So that's kind of cool. Um, as far as the, as far as the story, uh, you know, we're using the Hive again, and we're going to use them for a while. Um, I, I think some of it, it. This is sort of what I feel about this issue. You know, we we've been using Doctor Light. Um, the Justice League of America was in in a couple issues. Now we have the Puppeteer, which is an old Green Lantern villain. And I sort of feel like the connection to the JLA, almost like the group, uh, you know, trying to shake out from, from the Titans being called like a junior Justice League of America, that connection is still a little too too strong. And I'm really looking forward to when they completely break away from the JLA, uh, which they will do shortly, you know. Um, certainly with the Titans of Myth storyline, and then we get the Doom Patrol in, which is a connection to the past through Changeling. Um, but eventually we'll get more concrete Titans villains, uh, Brother Blood, Blackfire, um, you know, the Brotherhood of Evil, which is an updating of the Doom Patrol villains. So we'll move away from the Justice League and we'll get something that's a little bit more Titans focused. I'm really looking forward to that. So, you know, I again, I like the story. I did compare it to the trade, you know, to volume two of, of the trade. I wanted to see what the reprint did. And once again, the reprint uh, of these older issues, they're not straying from the colors. The color uh, was um, adapted by uh, Jameson, and it's just all restored, and, and it looks the same. They're not trying to model it. They're not trying to bring it up to modern standards. Um, what I like, what I like about the coloring though, and the, certainly the brighter pages of the trade is that a lot of the more crowded Perez scenes, um, you get a little more depth to them, a little more, almost like 3d nature to them. So for instance, in some of the debris scenes, you can really truly see the different debris. You can see what's in the foreground and what's in the background, and it doesn't just all look muddled. Or when they go to Dayton Laboratories and there's all this tech and all these people in the background sitting at consoles, um, a lot of that stuff gets pushed either to the foreground or background depending on the color. And um, I like that a lot because as the years go on, these issues start to fade and, you know, these issues are 30 years old, if not more. So um, the reprinting does not take away from the coloring at all, which I like, but it but it actually adds to it. So that's kind of cool. 
They did drop one caption, though, which I thought was weird. When the Hive agent is ready to shoot the Puppet Master, there's there's a uh, blurb underneath it, but they, they, I don't know, took it out for some reason or they just, uh, or just never got in, so I thought that was weird. Um, what else? So uh, that's about the trade. Oh, letter columns. So I'm doing this for the first time. I actually skipped ahead to a later Teen Titans issue, new Teen Titans issue, to see what readers thought of this issue. Um, I wanted to get their thoughts. So this is from New Teen Titans issue 14, and there are just two letters um, talking about this issue, about New Teen Titans number nine. And the first one is from Stu Kroll, who was a letter hack. Uh, and he says, come on, guys, killer puppets, a suicidal Batman doll. Pretty unbelievable, if you ask me. But you know what? I love it. This is what comics are all about. Pure escapism. The new Teen Titans is solid entertainment. It provides a chance to get away from the sometimes harsh realities of life and have some good, clean fun. With the witty words of Wolfman, I almost laughed my head off when Robin kicked Cyborg in his uh, Achilles heel. And the pleasurable art of George Perez, this book has become a monthly retreat into fantasy. Uh, so that's his thoughts on the issue. And then we have Kent A. Phoenix, who was also uh, a letter hack back in the day. He says, like puppets on a string was pure reading pleasure. I really like the way this comic is crafted. It was a nice change of pace to see the Titans become involved one by one and not as a team. Since personal character development is the mainstay of this book, this technique allowed for more in-depth probing. Gar calling in Robin was a natural, and I liked the way they worked as a team. Gar is, in many ways, the Robin of his youth, besides Batman. Cyborg and Raven worked out their differences and made for some warm moments in the handicapped setting. Their discussions as to superheroes was a bold new step that other comics have only blundered over. Wonder Girl and Starfire make a perfect team both in and out of costume, and I hope this will continue. Although the space allotted to the Kid Flash Wally West stories was minimal, I'm still glad to see it mentioned. As usual, George Perez and Romeo's, Romeo Tangle's art was beyond words of praise. If nothing else, this comic is a joy to look at. Every aspect of detail is used to the fullest. Those two are great. Now, I don't want you to think that... Uh, uh, people writing in, the only thing that they write in are praises, because if we go to the letter column title from New Teen Titans number nine, this is from Bill Henley Jr. Uh, from Ohio. And this is what he has to say, and this is about issues, oh, I don't know, like uh, three, four. He writes here, so these are the new Teen Titans? Uh-oh, folks. So far, there's been nothing new about them. The intergroup bickering and fighting, the monstrous embittered hero, the wisecracking obnoxious hero, the cheesy supervillain group, the ridiculously overly complicated plotline stretching issues after issue. We've seen it all before, many, many times, and there's nothing new about it, and nothing to give this title its own special reasons to exist. Unless you rethink what you're doing and give this book its own direction and style instead of imitating other supergroup titles, I think this I think this incarnation of the Titans will sink even faster than the last revival, despite the nice art and passable scripting. Ouch! Ouch! What do they say to his reply? They say, ah, oh, you know, you could have your own opinion. Um... 
let's see, if you picked up last issue, you'll see that the Titans are growing in different totally new directions. When you begin a book, you experiment with it. Try different things. See what works and use it. Discard what doesn't. With the introduction of more emphasis on their civilian identities, we believe the Titans has totally broken the mold of all other superhero group books. And I totally agree. Um, you know, outside of like the X-Men and Fantastic Four, you know, this book really does deal with their identities, which is something I've always liked. Um, so yeah, we're not going to, let's see, uh, Bill, we hope you keep reading. We also hope you keep in touch and let us know if you're convinced or not. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there you go. Some people weren't so excited about the new Teen Titans. It wasn't all just, uh, glory and praise. Um, and, uh, certainly after the first eight issues, like I said, this issue was a nice little kind of like catching up point. If you hadn't read the Titans at that time and this was your first issue, I could see you going, oh, cool. Here's some nice introduction to these characters. Um, if you're out there and you haven't read any Titans and this is your first episode and you read this issue as your first issue, I'm, you know, I'd be curious to see if that's something that holds up, uh, since it does feel like a, a starting point to, uh, the next, uh, big storyline. From this issue, uh, the Puppet Master, we will not see again. Um, I think the next time we see him... Oh, no, I lie. We do see him again. We see him again in New Teen Titans, number 41, from the 1984 Baxter run, uh, cover date of March 1988. He does appear again. I totally forgot about that. And then he shows up in a in a Who's Who update. <laughs> so, yeah, so we actually will see this character, you know, years from now. And, uh, you know, hey, for a story that's 35 years old, I mean, we're still talking Deathstroke to this day, not only in comics, but in TV as well, maybe even in movies. And Wally West has certainly had a huge history, and we're talking about him now, again, in comics and uh, on TV. So, uh, um, you know, the, <laughs> these characters don't go away uh, too often. All right, so that's today's episode. As I said earlier, what I'm going to do next episode is I'm going to take a look at other comics, other DC comics at the time, and see what else was going on um, that might connect to uh, the, the the characters and the creators. And we'll see if uh, you know there's some Omega Men I can talk about from Green Lantern. I'm going to do some feedback from Mr. Tom Martinek. And I'm going to talk about DC Rebirth as well as some early Kid Flash appearances. And I'm also going to take a sidebar and talk about Star Trek, the original series, and how that has a strange connection to the Titans as well. This has been The Tower, episode 15. You can reach me at peter at thedailyrios.com or on Twitter, or you can leave a comment on the website. And I hope to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.